The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. How's everyone doing? Good to see you today. Hey, listen, we're going to get right into this. Um, so in John 2, there's this little story, um, and it, it comes before Jesus starts his public ministry. So he hasn't done any miracles yet, um, hasn't taught anything yet. He's, he's just kind of waiting uh, to start the public phase of his ministry. And, um, and so he goes with his family to a wedding. Do you remember this story? He goes to a wedding in um, a place called uh, Cana. And um, while they're at the wedding reception, something horrible happens. They run, out of, they run out of wine. And this is a major embarrassment for the host. And so what happens next is that Mary goes to Jesus, his mom goes to him and says, um, they've run out of wine. Like it's his problem. And, and he's like, I'm just a guest here. I'm paraphrasing. He says, I'm just a guest here. Uh, what do you, he, he literally says to her, what do you want me to do about it? And then she kind of ignores what he said because she says, mom, and moms can do that with their kids, right? And she goes over to the servants who are to serve the wine and she says to them, do whatever he tells you to do. Now that, that's my favorite part of the story. Do whatever he tells you to do. And, and this is why and how that relates to this because I'm not really that interested in winemaking and this isn't a series on winemaking, uh, this is a series on how we handle our money. We got to start on it last week. This is message two, and we're really looking at it. And I, I got thinking about this story that the best advice I could possibly give you is this. Just do whatever Jesus tells you to do, right? And that, that fits every aspect of our lives. But as we look at this issue of money, and I'm going to tell you right out straight out of the gate, the, the series is called Jesus on Money. We laid a foundation last week. We're going to get more specifically. Last week, it was like um, the, the message was you own it. It doesn't own you. And, and this week, we're going to go deeper into that second part about what it looks like when money owns you. And this isn't going to be an easy message. Not at all. And, and I'm going to go hard at some of you, though I don't know that I'm going hard at you because I don't know your personal finances, but you're going to feel it. And, and there's nothing about this message that's really um, easy at all. And so we're going to take Jesus' mom's advice and we're going to do whatever Jesus tells us to do as we look all of that today and look at all of that today really in an effort to break free of the, the, the slavery that we feel uh, to money, that many of us feel to money. Does that sound good? That's where we're going today. So let's, let's get a start by praying and then we'll start working through what we have in front of us. Uh, Father, we, uh, we need your help uh, today to receive uh, the implanted word of God and to allow it to transform every part of our lives. And God, I pray that you would break down any resistance that's being felt in the room right now to hearing what you have to say uh, about um, money and how it can be an idol in our lives, how it, we can be enslaved to it. Father, I pray we'd be super open to hearing everything that you have to say to us and doing, doing whatever you have uh, to, to tell us um, to do. So Father, these things we do pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. What does it look like uh, when money has my heart, when you're enslaved to it? That's kind of the a big idea over this message. Um, we're going to start here. I, I want what I don't have. Greed 
grips me. So let's start with a definition of greed, in fact. The uh, greed is the uh, selfish desire for more of something than is needed, and especially with respect to money. So uh, the selfish desire for more of something than is needed, especially with respect to money, and I, I want you to you have your Bibles open right now, and I know you're jotting that down still, but uh, Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to start. We want to hear what Jesus has to say here. And um, this is uh, commonly called the parable of the rich fool. So Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It, it seems like a really odd question to be asking Jesus about this. I don't know if he had said something that had stirred this up in, in the life of this man and his thoughts, but he comes to Jesus and, and says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, now he's addressing the crowd because he's going to use this as a moment to teach some biblical principles. And he says to them, he said to them, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Or you could put in there greed. Let's be careful about greed because he's seeing that in the man, but he knows that this man isn't the only one suffering from greed. Notice what he says next, and this is one of these, I got to get this underlined in my Bible portions, okay? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life, your life, does not consist in the abundance of your possessions and what you own. But a lot of us, that's kind of where our life is going, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And the text already tells us he's already rich. He lives in a place where gaining even more wealth is easy and that's what's actually happening in his life. And now he's facing a dilemma. The barns that I have, they're not big enough. Where am I gonna put all of my wealth? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, perfectly good barns weren't big enough. And I'm going to build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man's problem is that his first thought when the prosperity train was rolling for him, his first thought was, how can I continue to collect more and more and have it all for myself? And there was no thought to how he might be able to share that or how that might be able to benefit others or how he might be able to invest in eternal things rather than temporal things. He, he was greedy. The text tells us he already had ample goods. The text tells us he was rich. And the text tells us that all of this treasure was for himself. Now before we get too far into this point, let me say some things about wealthy and poor. 
And this, these first two points really go right after this, but um, I know wealthy people who are content with what they already have and aren't looking to build bigger barns. And they're generous. They love Jesus and they're generous and they look for ways to pour out the wealth that God has given them to others. I know rich people like that. They're not greedy. They're not gripped by their wealth. And the expression that we use is they hold everything that they own with open hands and, and before the Lord. They have uh, high levels of gratitude toward the Lord for the thing that he's been able to give to them. God has simply made them good at making money. And, and listen, there's no foul there. If God gives somebody more intelligence than me with regard to money or a harder working ethic or just an ability or out of his grace, he just pours it out on, on them. There's no foul in any of that. If someone's smarter than I am and can make more money doing it, why would I ever despise that? There's nothing in the scriptures that say that we can. And I know poor people who spend most of their time and energy thinking about how they might get rich, thinking about the next lottery win. And you know, the issue is not having or not having. The issue is what's going on in your heart. What's going on in your head? What are you thinking about? So we need to be really careful as we work through all of this because it's really about a personal selfish desire to have more of what you don't have. Whether you're rich or poor, greed can consume both. Now, how, many of you, how many of you were here last week? Last week, And I kind of dipped into this little thing about a certain subject that I just kind of mentioned but didn't want to really talk about then, but that I said I reserve the right to ever bring it back. What was that topic again? Lotteries, and I just mentioned it again, but I want to spend a little bit of time here because here's what I, I believe that the number one greed indicator in our culture is lotteries. Number one. And I want to tell you why I think that playing the lottery is not necessarily a sin and yet not a good idea. Okay, not necessarily a sin, but, but not a good idea. Uh, the Bible would categorize, you, you can't find a verse, I searched, you, there's no verse that says, you, uh, thou shalt not play Lotto Max. It's not there, okay? There's nothing pronouncing the evil of Lotto 649, okay? It's just not, it's not there at all. But the Bible would categorize, anybody who would speak against this would, would categorize them as a get-rich-quick scheme. And the Proverbs especially have quite a bit to say about get-rich-quick Schemes. In fact, one representative verse, because there's several, Proverbs 13, 11 just says this, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. And, and I mean, I wish, I don't have the time in this and I would get down a path I don't really want to go down, but if you want to have some fun this afternoon, um, just Google um, um, uh, disastrous lottery stories. That should work. And, and the number of stories of people who ruined their lives. One guy who went through, this is unbelievable, went through $31 million in 20 months. I mean, how do you even do that? Some of you are like, I'd like to try. But it's like, how do you even do that? But along the way, you know what happens? You lose every friend and every family member. 
You just lose it all. And people end up despising you and you, you end up at the end of the day with zero. And that's really what the Proverbs are talking about. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And one writer that I read said, you know, I know it's boring. This little by little, you're gonna increase your wealth little by little. I know that it's boring to make a salary, live within your budget, save for your retirement, don't spend more than you earn, don't, don't be in debt. I know that's boring. It's boring. Gaining wealth little by little is boring, but it works. Okay, it works. And it's more effective than playing the lottery uh, for sure. The principle is this, that if we spend our time planning and investing rather than trying to figure out how to get rich quick, then we're gonna come out way ahead in the end. And so the, aside from this biblical uh, counsel about seeking wealth hastily, again, speaking to lotteries and gaming of all kinds, because now slots are just like the single fastest growing sector of the gaming industry. Lots of people playing slots, lots of people going uh, to casinos. Um, but here's what you need to know about it, and this is true whether you're preaching in a church or going to a seminar on this or anywhere you go. Everybody understands this to be absolutely true, and the number one reason why you shouldn't play the lotteries is the house always wins. The house always wins, which means the players always, they would just lose. The odds of you winning are so uh, micro uh, that it's not worth doing. And there's so much that can be said about the gaming industry. And again, I wanna just kind of put this out here because it's not in the scope of this series. But when I talk about lotteries and gaming and casinos and slots and all of that, there's so much that can be said from the perspective of the word of God with that um, with respect to social justice issues and how it's just hurting our society and hurting the poor. And we as the followers of Jesus Christ should have a conscience about that, okay? That's a whole other issue, but I felt like that was worth mentioning. Now, all of that said, because I said the Bible doesn't specifically prohibit this, we're drawing some principles that are helping us make a good decision about all of this, but I concede that some Christ followers within the scope of Christian liberty Romans chapter 14, for example, that teaches this, might be able to, to use the phrase from the Ontario Lottery Corporation, might, some might be able to set a limit and play within it. Some believers might actually be able to do this. But honestly, given the odds of winning, I would just say that you might be better off doing this. Um, just, you know, can I have, where's uh, Alex? Could you come up here just for a minute, please? Just before I do this. Um, yeah, come on up here. I don't honestly have no idea why you're hesitating. So, because I said your name, I said, come up here and just stand right over here and hold that for a second. Okay, this is good. Hold that up. Right. So, so playing the lottery or going to the slots or the casino or something, I mean, honestly, you just might as well be doing this. How long should I hold it, right? There we go. You get the picture? This is a bad idea. This actually, because fire is so fun. This actually was way more fun than buying a lottery ticket and checking your numbers, especially for the guys, because what guy doesn't like to burn stuff? Am I, am I right? Am I right? I'm all right. Thanks, Alex. Let's thank Alex for coming up here. That was awesome, buddy. All right. Um, the driving force behind greed, before we leave this point, let me just say this, and I mentioned this verse last week from 1 Timothy 6.10, where it speaks about the love of money. 
And then King Solomon, who is like the smartest guy ever, he said this in Ecclesiastes 5.10, same thing. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That seems so stupid, but it's true. And you know it to be true. And it doesn't matter how much you ever earn in life. It's never gonna be satisfying. It's never gonna be enough. It can never satisfy the longing that you have in your heart. If you love money, it's never gonna work. Nor he who loves wealth, his income. This also is vanity. It's meaningless. It's empty. And these are wise words, but I'm telling you, they're so hard to believe that if you love money, it'll never satisfy you. It's so hard to believe it. Now that verse really helps us get into the second point as well, because it applies to this. When money has my heart, secondly, I obsess over what I have. Wealth consumes me. So this is different in the sense that greed can consume us whether we have it or not. Uh, wealth though, now we're talking about what we, actually, what we actually have. And again, this scales. I'm not necessarily talking to the rich. You don't have to be wealthy to be super protective of what you do have. You never want to open your home to people. You'd never lend your car to somebody. You'd never give your time to anyone. You're not particularly generous in your giving. You're just about accumulating for yourself and what you have is yours and you don't share with anyone. I mean, that scales to everybody. And so no one's getting a pass here. The issue of wealth as a believer, even when we start talking about this, it's just not an easy one to lock down. There's some things said in the scriptures that are really diff difficult to hear. And we have some in the Christian realm who are teaching, some really prominent Bible teachers, in fact, and people believing that the way to go in the Christian life is the way of poverty. That if you have anything for yourself, that somehow you're violating what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I respect these teachers. I might agree with them on 98 or 99% of what they teach. And I just have this problem with this idea that we need to return to a new monasticism where everybody's forsaking everything. Not having a house, not having a car, not going on vacation, not doing any of the things that in fact, God has poured some of these things out in our lives. And so I'm kind of rejecting that a little bit and responding to it. And I want to hear exactly what the scriptures have to say about all of this. But again, it isn't an easy one. And if we look at the words of Jesus in Mark 10, 25, that uh, Jesus said, it's, it's easier uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I mean, he's talking about a literal camel on a literal, literal needle. So you have a needle with a little eye that you're gonna put, you have, a, you have trouble getting the, little, the thread through it, right? Now we're gonna take like an entire camel and, and thread the camel through the needle. How, how hard is that gonna be? Pretty hard? Or even impossible? And that's really the point of what Jesus is saying here. He's setting up the impossibility, and I want us to hear this. He's setting up the impossibility of any of us getting saved of any of us having our sins forgiven, of any of us getting close to God and getting into the kingdom of God. It's absolutely impossible for any of us. It's a miracle of God that any of us gets saved. Okay, like not even one amen on that? Okay, okay so let's do this. I'll say it again, and while I'm saying it, you think of a great response. It's a miracle of God that anyone gets saved. Correct, especially you. 
end me. <laughs> but here's the thing, rich people get saved the same way poor people get saved. Did you know that? Saved exactly the same way. You don't get saved by giving away all your wealth, even though Jesus talked to the rich young ruler about that. That's not the way you get saved. Rich people, poor people, they get saved the exact same way. Okay, there's, there's, there's no difference. You have to come to the cross, rich or poor. You have to see the suffering Savior and know that he gave his life for you, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. You have to believe that he was raised on the third day to new life, and that new life, the power of the resurrection, can be yours if you believe and confess. Rich people, poor people, exactly the same. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. Grace that we're saved. And when you get that, you really understand that wealth isn't actually the problem. One's attitude about wealth is the problem. If you go back to a passage again that we looked at last week in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Again, I mentioned this last week. The problem wasn't that he had wealth, but that his heart was closed to helping. That there were people who had needs right outside of his gate, and while he's living in the lap of luxury and enjoying all that he had, had gained in this life, he had people suffering outside his own gate. To use the language here, his wealth consumed him. He was obsessed with what he owned. He had no regard at all for the poor and the suffering or anybody on the margins. It was an indicator of his heart that had not been given to God because if his heart had been given to God, he would have saw, seen the plight. He might have remained wealthy, but he still would have seen the plight of others and poured himself out for that. James 1.27 makes it super clear that pure and undefiled religion before God and man is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So holiness, that's the last part, but then pouring yourself out. There's the inner part, but there's the outer part that I'm actually working to care for widows and orphans, which are really in the text just representative of anybody who's on the margins. Those in prison, those who are ill, those who are, are, are uh, disabled, th those who are, uh, suffer, uh, have uh, unwanted pregnancies, uh, uh, people of all kinds, addicts, alcoholics, drug, drug addicts. Anybody who's on the margins of our society. And if you don't have a heart, if there isn't something happening from your household toward those who are on the margins, if you can't point to anything, where's the love of God in your life? Where's the gospel transformation? I warned you this would be hard. So let's diagnose the problem a little more closely with some questions. And I'm basing this on um, something that Tim Keller wrote in his book, Counterfeit Gods. And he's really going after the idea of idolatry of all kinds in our lives. He gives this little litmus test for figuring that out. And we're gonna adapt it just a little bit so that it fits just with the application here about money, but it applies to a lot of things. So Tim Keller says this, we want to, we're testing whether or not wealth consumes us. What we have owns us. So I'm calling this the love of money test. Test this first, your imagination. The imagination test. 
Um, what do you daydream about? What do you think about in idle moments? When you're alone in the car, you don't have the radio on, you're just driving around, what are you thinking about? When you fall asleep at night, what thoughts are going through your head? What do you imagine for yourself? If you're thinking disproportionately about money, about wealth, about what you have or what you want, then you're not getting a check mark on this one. If in those idle moments, the thing that you're thinking about is cash, that's a problem. Or how about this one, the banking test? Ron Blue, who's another um, Christian teacher in the area of finances, says a life story could be written from a checkbook. It reflects your goals, priorities, convictions, relationships, and even the use of your time. A person who has been a Christian for even a short time can fake prayer, Bible study, evangelism, going to church, and so on. But he can't fake what his checkbook reveals. I mean, this is so easy right now because I could, I could ask any of you, um, how about you just on your smartphone, just call up your banking, just sign into that and hand that to me. We'll just read through it right now. And, um, and, and, and we, we'd see all this, wouldn't we? Some of you be very, very willing to do that because you've got great priorities and these things are in line and it shows the priority of the love of Christ in your life and the gospel transformation and who you really are as a follower of Christ. But for a lot of you, what's going on in your bank account, in your statements, is not great. What you spend your money on reveals what you worship. And how about this, love of money test, the imagination test, the banking test, and then your, the functional savior test. Who really is your savior? What are you relying on? What's your, what's your security in? Is your, is your future security in securities? Are you preoccupied with your investments? Does that make it hard for you to give and be generous? You know, I, I'm thinking about this phrase, you know, you go through a rough patch and, and one of the things that you might be tempted to say is, oh, we're gonna be okay because, fill in the blank, we're, we're, we're gonna be fine because. And a lot of people, the answer to that question is, we're gonna be fine because we own land. We're gonna be fine because we've got investments, RSPs, we're, we're gonna be fine we can survive this downturn. We can survive this trial. We can survive this thing that's happening in our life because we know we're secure in the future. And by that we mean we've got enough money to ride out any storm. Honestly, it's ridiculous, especially for the followers of Christ, to ever answer that question that way. I'm secure. I know I'm going to be okay because of Jesus, by the way. Because of Jesus. And even if all of my wealth is stripped away, I know I'm going to be fine because I've got Jesus. I knew a man, previous church, and uh, he was like su the super cautious type, but he, he had a 
fair amount of money. I don't, I don't think he was wealthy or rich by any stretch of the imagination, but he was... Um, but, but he told me at one time that he invested only in gold. And now, if you invest in gold, by the way, if you call up some broker and you decide to buy some gold, you're going to actually get paper. Did you know that? You're not actually going to get the gold. You're going to get paper that says you have gold. And, but this guy actually had gold. Bars. And... and um, and he had them, I don't know where he had them, in a box buried in his backyard or a safety deposit box or something. He had them. And his whole contention was, if the whole thing crashes, I've, I've got wealth, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And I was like, what a dumb idea. Do you really, if this is you, do you really want to be the only person on your street with money when the whole thing crashes? Honestly? You want to be the only person with, with any wealth at all? That's such a bad plan. You actually won't have it that long right? I mean, our security needs to be in Jesus Christ. Who's your functional savior? Um, and then this test, the imagination test, banking test, functional savior test. And the fourth test is, is the emotional test. What brings you the most happiness? What, what, what you respond to with the greatest uncontrolled emotional reaction is actually what you worship. The thing that both elates you and upsets you the most. So if, if money, if, if the emotional track that you're on with regard to money is, I'm, I'm angry about it a lot, I'm, I'm fearful about where it's going in my life, I'm anxious about it, I'm often sad about it, I'm depressed... I mean, if those are the emotions that are surrounding money for you, okay, that's probably, like, if you're having strong, uncontrolled emotional reactions that are like that, then you probably are thinking a little bit too much about money. But, but the flip side is true, and I started that by saying, does it cause you the most happiness? And I just love it when I get, my paycheck comes in, paycheck, payday's my favorite day of the week. I think, honestly, Sunday ought to be the favorite day of the week for you right? Nobody ever gets paid on Sundays. But we ought to be just elated that we're here worshiping the Lord and get to be together. And this should be like number one favorite day of the week. Unless you're a Saturday church person, then it's Saturday. <laughs> but like if you're happiest on payday, look, we got all this money in our bank account. I'm so happy. All the pressure's off. It's amazing. Or if a bonus comes in or when your income tax refund comes or some other surprise comes in the mail. $15 rebate from Jiffy Lube. I'm so thrilled it came in. It's exciting. Amazing. That we can just be so turned one way or the other emotionally by money and that can be a strong indicator that wealth is consuming us. All right, are we getting it? Greed, wealth. How about this last one? It's not gonna get easier. There's the warning. When money has my heart, when it owns me, I buy what I don't need and debt overwhelms me. So let's understand debt first. I think we're gonna have this up on the screen. Let's talk first of all about good debt. There's good debt and there's bad debt. I hope you understand that. A good debt um, can also be called investment debt. And... Uh, 
Essentially what happens here is when you uh, borrow the money and then spend it on something, the thing that you've spent it on actually is going to appreciate in value. Okay, make sense? You have an asset that appreciates in value, all things being equal. We're talking about general principles here. And I'll come back to that qualifier in a second. But some examples of good debt would be mortgages. Okay, a mortgage is a good debt, all things being equal, because you have a home that will appreciate in value. You've invested your money, and so that's a good debt. And even student loans, some might be surprised by that, but even a student loan can be a good debt in the sense that the reason why I got the loan and went and got the degree was to advance my, my abilities and my qualifications so that I have better job prospects in the future. I can get a job that actually pays more than if I didn't have the degree. That doesn't always work out. I'm sorry for you if you have a BA in history. That's not really gonna help you. If you spend 50 grand on a BA in history, I'm sorry. That's, I really am. Um, <laughs> I'm actually kind of sorry I said that. Um, you know what I'm saying here? You can, you can responsibly, and here's the caveat, and there's a little asterisk here beside good debt because even good debt be, can become bad debt if it's not handled responsibility, responsibly. Good debt can become bad debt. If you, if you buy a house that you actually can't afford and your mortgage is too big and the taxes are too high and the maintenance is off the charts and your utilities are big, and now all of a sudden it's a burden to you now. Okay, get, you have to right size your mortgage and you have to get the right amortization and the right interest rate. You gotta treat that responsibly or good debt becomes bad debt. Same with student loans. If you're just stacking one on top of the other or you're pursuing degrees that aren't actually gonna go anywhere or you get out from school and you don't with, with a ruthlessness that I can't even properly describe, start aggressively paying down your debt to get rid of it as fast as you can, it's irresponsible. Like you need to live in self-denial during your years in college and your years following college in order to get those loans paid off as soon as possible or else good debt becomes bad debt. Okay, that makes sense? Okay, let's talk about bad debt for a second then. Bad debt is also called consumer debt. You should never have this. Never. Because you have a consumable that depreciates in value. You've, you've borrowed to buy something that is depreciating the minute you buy it. So an extreme example of this, uh, let me give you some examples. First of all, car loans, lines of credit, payday loans, we talked, gave them a rough ride last week, and credit card balances. Okay, these are all examples of, of bad debt depreciating in value. Now, the worst example of this, the extreme example is I borrow by, by putting gas on my credit card, I, I borrow to buy gas to put in the car and within a few days, the gas is all gone. Okay, it's gone. But if I don't pay that off at the end of the month, I'm now paying interest on the gas I put in my car a month ago. Everybody sees that that's a bad plan, correct? Even worse than that, because maybe the car is at least getting you to work so you can make some money, worse than that, is, is you go out to eat, it's not in your budget, you go out to eat and you put that on your credit card and you've consumed that in like 20 minutes, it's gone. Okay, you've now consumed that, and there's, it's only depreciating, it's not, um, it's done. 
And yet, if you don't pay the balance off at the end of the month, you're paying interest on the food you ate a month ago. Okay, bad, bad idea. And so what we're talking about here, um, when we talk about debt, everything that I'm gonna talk about is non-mortgage, I'm even gonna include here non-business, non-mortgage, non-business, consumer debt, that's bad debt. And when you have it, it's slavery, it, it owns you. Okay, it owns you. In Matthew 6, 24, a passage we looked at last week, just one little phrase from that. No one, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Now, when he says this, he's talking about God and money. You can't serve God and money. And he's using the language, though, when he uses the word masters, he's using the language of slavery. He's using the language of slavery. And please understand that money and debt... Money and debt is the master and you are the slave if you have it, if you have consumer debt. Proverbs 22, seven, let's put this verse up. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. That is true with regard to bad debt. That is true even with regard to good debt. That is true 100% of the time that the that the borrower is a slave to the lender. And let me say that bad debt especially flows from an inability to control spending. It flows from an inability to control spending. It is not this. It is not that you don't have enough money. You say, well, I could just solve all my problems if I just had more money. More money in my budget will be the thing that is my solution. And no, it won't. You need to be faithful with, the, with what God's given you now. You need to demonstrate responsibility with, with what has already been entrusted to you. And when you're proven in that, perhaps God will be generous enough to pour some more out in your life. The problem you have is not a lack of money problem, it's, a, it's an inability to control your spending. And if you have a spending problem, ready? Let's call it out for what it is. It's sin. If you have a, set, a spending problem, it is a spiritual issue. It's a sin issue in your life. Because whatever you use to medicate yourself Whatever you use to quell anxiety in your life or fear to soothe your depression, whatever you use to make yourself feel better, that isn't Jesus and isn't the word of God, then it is sin. Alcohol, pot, Sex, eating, or spending. Listen to me. We like to categorize all the sins and make some worse than others and talk about some more and, and, and wag the finger at people. I'll give you the list again. Alcohol, pot, sex, eating, spending, it's all exactly the same when you're using it as a substitution for Jesus. When you buy what you don't need, 
in order to find significance and satisfaction. It's sin. And so we're in these videos in our small groups. How many people were in their small group this week and have seen at least the first of the videos? Just raise your hand for me right now. That's great. And, and we, have a, we have a session. If you're not in a small group or your small group's meeting this week, that's great. But if you're not in a small group, we have a class starting at 11 o'clock today. It's the first in the six weeks. And you can jump into that uh, right away. But Joe Sangle, he's the leader of this. So those of you who have already seen him, this guy is, this guy is like um, high octane. Have you noticed that? Those of you who have heard him, he's high octane. I am thoroughly convinced this man uses Red Bull and not cream in his coffee. <laughs> his favorite song is Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie. Okay, that, that's his theme song. So this is Joe Sangle. And so be ready for him if you haven't heard him yet. And those of you who have seen him know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but he talks about the fully funded life. And that can even sound a bit offensive to us because it can sound like a mantra that leads towards some kind of prosperity gospel. We're not preaching at all. That's not what we're talking about here. But he's talking about the fully funded life because he knows he's preaching out of the understanding that if money has our heart, that's a problem. And when we align ourselves with the principles of God on money, that is an indicator that our heart's getting to a better place because he's seeing it as a sin issue. And so we need to get to that place. He's going after the evil that grips our hearts. So the fully funded life to those overwhelmed by debt, I have lots of consumer debt, it's overwhelming me. I need to get to the fully funded life is exactly the same as saying to the alcoholic, you need to get to the fully sober life. Exactly the same as saying to the sex addict, you need to get to the fully pure life. Because we're just dealing with different sin issues, that's all. It's a life fully aligned with God's purposes and his ways. Do you want that or not? So how big is this problem? Because I'm putting so much emphasis on it, we won't be sitting here going like, is it really that big of a problem? And it actually is, it's massive. Let me give you some numbers here again. Last week, we talked about average household uh, debt compared to disposable income. Now, I want to talk just about the consumer debt portion, because I talked about everything, in including mortgages last week. I, I just want to talk about the bad debt portion of it. Bad debt held by Canadians, according to Equifax, is just shy of $21,000 per household. That's consumer debt or bad debt. $21,000. About... More than a tenth of it, 2,700 of it is on credit cards where people have not paid the balance. Most credit cards are running 18, 19, 20% interest, which is insane. People are carrying balances on credit cards with that kind of interest rate. So effectively, that kind of person, if they just had $2,700 on a credit card and they were paying them at 20% and were paying the minimum balance, Okay, they're trying to pay off their $2,700. It would take them, you know how many years? Nine years, nine years to pay it off, to pay off $2,700, nine years. And they'd pay $6,000 worth of interest in that time period to pay off the $2,700. That's just stupid. Can we just call that out? If that's you, stop it. The average Canadian is spending, listen to this. So on the consumer debt, the $2,700, the $21,000, I'm sorry, that they have in consumer debt, the average Canadian is spending 14% of their income 
on servicing consumer debt or bad debt. So I'm just wondering if I should say something here about the average Canadian Christian who has a hard time giving to his church when 14% of their income is going to service consumer debt. I was thinking about saying something like that here, but maybe I won't. (laughs) See, when you're carrying that kind of debt, it's not good for you actually in any way. As reported in the business magazine Fast Company, citing a University of Nottingham study, people who struggle to pay off their debts are more than twice as likely to suffer from mental health issues, including anxiety and depression. Twice as likely if you're carrying consumer debt. They also feel constantly under strain, hopeless, and incapable of decision-making. Many people with debt problems describe feelings of being unable to concentrate on a day-to-day, on day-to-day activities or make normal decisions. This has wider effects on their attitudes and general health. An increase in debt also brings an increase in stress that can manifest itself physically. So we talked about all the mental issues that can happen around carrying this kind of debt, but now there's physical issues. Stress uh, plays a significant role in heart disease and there's a significant positive correlation between debt and heart attacks. The more debt you have, the greater your chances of having a heart attack from the stress. Stress also brings conditions such as migraines, obesity, and accelerated aging. None of that is good. Mental health issues, physical health issues. Then the study goes on to say this, okay? The researcher said, ironically, in order to counterbalance all of that, many people practice retail therapy. Where's, like, I want to just post an emoji, the one with the big wide eyes right now. It's like, what are we talking about here? It just adds more fuel to the fire, Debt is overwhelming us mentally, physically, and spiritually, and we have to end our enslavement to it and get healthy. So here's a clue to the solution, and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter six and see these verses. Matthew chapter six, um, verse 25. This speaks to the whole thing we've been talking about and and caps it off nicely. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He already knows. And then the key verse to it all, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All the things you need, the basics of life, God already knows you need them 
and he's gonna supply them to you and all you have to do is sit back and rest and align yourself with his ways and his will. God will take care of you. That's a great word for us. So what our small groups are working on is this. This is, this is the heart. This is the appeal to the heart. That's what the weekend messages are about. But in our small groups, it's about getting very practical into the specifics and getting some help for all of this. And so in, in the small groups relative to this message, the plan to get out of debt and the plan to stay out of debt by having a budget and sticking to it, by using cash, Cash is, it's so important for us to use cash to, to cut up credit cards. I mean, I think this would be a good idea right now. Who, who, want, who right now knows that you have a problem with this and the first thing you could do right now to show that you're serious about it is to cut up your credit card? Who, who would say that that's me? Anybody here? Guy have scissors. Well, somebody offered me one last night. I can wait for a minute. Anybody got a credit card they want me to chop up? Thanks. Two. Oh, praise the Lord. Thanks, Kel. Here, I'm going I'm to give you a little Blue Jays portion back there because that's kind of cool. There, here's another one. PC Financial. Let's, let's just chop that up. Let's get rid of these cards. And um, you know what I'm going to do is at the end of the service, we always have the elders come up here and be prepared to pray with folks. And I'm just going to leave the scissors right here. And you can come up and cut up your own credit card if that you know that that's the issue. And if a, new, um, if a new credit card application comes in the mail, because no doubt this is really great that you've done this, you're gonna get another one in the mail this week. Right now, Tony, can you give me a hand for a second? There's a shredder back here. And Cheryl got one in the mail uh, this week. And so let's just get, grab that shredder and just put it right up here on the table. Thanks, Tony. And um, so this is, I'm just gonna suggest that this is what we do. Tony, this isn't really that complicated. Like literally it was pick up the shredder and just put it up here. Okay, right. So just take this. Here's some really great, this is, this is retail therapy. I'm telling you right there. All right. Let's... I think Cheryl knows I did that. Um, just shred it. And then re reward progress along the way as you begin to eliminate debts. Have a little party for yourself. Get counsel. Get an advocate. Start living uh, within your means and um, don't let money own you. Stop the enslavement to wealth, to greed, and to debt. All right, does that sound good? Okay, I got some questions. You guys have been submitting some questions, so Dan's gonna come up here and uh, Tony left the shredder up here, so I'll move that. Half a job, man. Thanks, Tony, let me All get right. that out of your way. We got some good questions here. All right. So first question, um, like, would there be a healthy limit to actually have for a credit card? Zero. In other words, no limit, don't have a credit card. If you, if you listen to Dave Ramsey, who's again, another one of these kind of top level Christian financial uh, advisor guys, he's probably the top, at the top of his game right now. Uh, Ramsey really advocates for no credit cards uh, whatsoever. And that, that is pretty radical. And you might say, like, I just don't see that that would be possible uh, for you, but it, it's actually probably more possible than you think. But I'll share, what, what, uh, I'll share a little bit what Cheryl and I do here. And we think that it's kind of, kind of um, tempered back a little bit. And, and I would equate it this way, just before I say all of this. Um, some of you 
if I can use illustrations, some of you, it might be okay to have a beer on the weekend and, and you don't have any trouble with that and you can stop at one and you're never intoxicated, never impaired in any way and it's, it's fine for you. And, and others of us know that we have a predisposition toward it. So like in my house, there's zero beer. We just don't do it. Um, our kids don't drink. We, we, we just keep it something we just don't do because we know that our families have a history. I just don't wanna go down that road. But for some of you, okay, it's a measured thing. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. So, so it's, it, for you, it might not be an issue. So the same thing with credit cards. For, for some of you, honestly, you can't handle them. Cut them up, get rid of them, get them out of your house. Don't have them in your wallet. Just be done with them. For others, you can use it in a measured way and it's okay. So again, what Sherilyn and I do here is we... Um, we have uh, two credit cards, one that's used for uh, her business, Cheryl's business expenses, and another one that's used uh, just for our personal expenses. But we always, 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 everybody say always. always. We always pay off the full amount before the due date, and we never, 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 say never, never, never pay what? Interest. Never, never. Okay, so we, that's the way we use our credit cards. If you can do that and that works for you, great. Now here's Dave Ramsey's thing and why he says no credit cards. It's because please understand that the use of credit cards increases spending because it seems a little bit less of an impact on your budget, on your wallet when you're spending using a credit card. It's even true of debit cards that we spend more because I find myself doing this and tell me if you've ever done this. I so rarely have actual money in my wallet Okay, so rarely. But if I have like a 10 in my wallet and I go to Starbucks and I'm gonna pick up a tea on my way to work, I'll use my debit card because I don't wanna spend the 10 in my wallet. How many people are confessing this right now? It's so insane that we do that, okay? But we do and um, so you spend more or it's like this. So Cheryl uh, was away yesterday uh, for work and, and so she said, hey, while you're out today, pick up eggs, Period was the end of the sentence. She told me to pick up eggs. How many things were on the shopping list? Okay, I love shopping. I love grocery stores. I might be rare in that. I love the grocery store. I would shop every day if I could. At the grocery store, I, I just enjoy food. I enjoy the experience. I'm a Zares Loblaws guy. I think they're killing it in the marketplace. I just love that. I, I, and and um, I went to pick up, what did I go to pick up? Eggs. I, I, four bags. I brought home four bags. And the crazy thing is I had to pay for bags because I didn't bring bags in <laughs> because I was only going in for eggs and four bags. I was texting Luke, who's back from Chicago. I was texting Luke saying, what do you want? Pierogies, bacon, got all kinds of really good stuff. It's all in the fridge for you, son. It's all, all set for you. We're ready, we're ready to go. All right, so it increases your spending. So that's the thing you really have to watch for. And um, all right, I think that's, that answers that question. Cool, cool. Um, I know we kind of talked about this a little bit about cars being consumer debt, but I mean, is it ever appropriate to finance a car purchase? Cars are consumer debt. Cars are consumer debt. They're just bad debt. I mean, we all know this. If you buy a new car and you've heard the expression, you drive it off the lot and it's already depreciated however many thousands of dollars which seems ridiculous. If you pulled it over to the side and took pictures and posted on Auto Trader, you ought to be able to get the same amount of money for it, but you can't. And so we know it's a depreciating asset and no matter what, that if you're, whether you're leasing or buying, okay, leasing or buying, you're beholden to the lender, all right? 
And, and so if there's a downturn in your personal economy or you lose your job or something changes in some way and all of a sudden you still have to make those car payments. And so you're locked in. And so really the plan is, and again, Ramsey's a huge advocate of this, but the plan is you buy the car you can afford, even though it's a clunker, it's beaten down, it's, it, it doesn't look great, it assaults your pride every time you get into it. Again, we all like to have a, a, a shiny new car. I love that new car smell. Great, you just spent $25,000 for something that lasts a week. New car smell is gone in a week. So if you can afford a $3,000 car, buy a $3,000 car. And then start saving your money in a special fund that's for the next car. And, and, and it's not for anything else. It's not for, oh, I'm feeling so depressed. It's January, let's go to Florida. It's not for that. It's not for that, it's for your next car. And when the $3,000 car is being driven over to the scrapyard and you're getting 300 bucks for it, okay, when that happens, you now have the money to go and buy a $5,000 car because you weren't giving that money to whoever sold you the car, you're not enslaved to them, you're benefiting yourself. Now you can buy a $5,000 car. And, and, and you should be on, here's the pride you should have, here's where all the boasting comes. Not that you have a new car, but how many clicks you have on the car you have. So a little boasting right now for me, we have 240,000 on one of our cars and 210,000 kilometers on the other one, and we're aiming for three or 400,000 on both of them, all right? That's where the boasting comes, that God has given you the ability to uh, lose your pride over having newer vehicles, and, and you got something uh, that's very functional for you and your family, and um, is being handled responsibly. Does that sound good? That's good. Yeah, one final thing I'll just add in here too is that I know this is a hard truth, but some people actually can't afford a car. Hmm. And that's tough because I think we live in a society where we think we have a constitutional right to a vehicle. And we don't. Some of you can't afford a car, and that's okay. And so you need to work it out. You need to live close to where you work and uh, figure out rides and get a small group close to your house or whatever and uh, rely on friends a little bit or take the bus um, or use Uber or something, whatever. But you need to... If you can't afford a car, don't buy a car. Okay. okay. One more question. And before we do that, I just want to remind all of you, we would love to hear from you. And uh, I think on the screen we've got, yeah, so you can send us an email this week or text to that number. And uh, we're going to answer some more questions the next two weeks. And so uh, send us your questions. But the one other one that we got um, for today, somebody said, I have several debts. Which should I pay off first? Yeah, so a couple of different... Um, approaches if you have three or four different debts, credit cards, line of credit, car loan, all of that. Um, the, the one approach is to, to pay um, the highest interest debt first. So I, if I'm paying 18 or 19 or 20% on a credit card, then I would go after that loan first, and that seems to make the most sense in some respects. Another approach is to pay the uh, smallest debt first, and the philosophy behind that is then I get some wins early on. And I do want to get some wins. I want to have this incremental along the way where there's checkpoints and I can see that I'm really, I'm making some progress along the way here. And so pay the smallest debt first. And if you're, you're doing the minimum on everything, you're putting extra on that small debt, you get that eliminated, and then you're making the minimum and everything you were paying on the first one, the minimum plus the extra, that's now going on the second debt. You pound that one out, and that just keeps going until all your debts are gone. And then, when you're not paying all your debts, look at all the extra money. Look at all the extra money I have, right? You're paying yourself back. 
uh, really is what you're doing. And so um, the other thing is some people might ask the question here, well, isn't it better just to go to a debt counselor and consolidate all my debts, get all those four or five debts all rolled into one so that I have one consistent payment, one consistent um, interest rate. And the problem with that is that, yes, it, the interest rate might be less than some of your debts, but it's going to be more than others, and it doesn't always work out in your favor. Plus, what it does is it kind of masks the problem a little bit. It brings it down into a reasonable payment level for you, but then it's going to take the entire debt and amortize it over a longer period of time so it actually works for you. So now, instead of getting all your debts paid off maybe in two or three years because you go hard at it, now you're paying off the same debt over six, seven, or eight years. Hmm. And, and um, sadly, one of the statistics I read on one of the debt counseling service websites was that 78% of people who get debt consolidation loans end up back in the same situation again. 78%, which is, which is startling. So it's not the solution, it masks the problem, and we need to get to a better place with all of that. All right, is that good? It's good. All right, keep sending your questions in. Dan's gonna close us in prayer here, and God bless you, thanks for your attention on this today. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for how it speaks uh, so clearly to the matters that we face in life. And, and uh, God, it deals with the nitty-gritty stuff. And I pray by your spirit that we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers of your word, God. Uh, we've heard some really important stuff about what can grip our heart and how money can grip our heart. And God, you need to be at the center of our hearts. That's where you deserve to be and where you want to be. And so, God, would you help us to do whatever it takes in response to this message to uh, rid ourselves of the idol of money and if, if you have moved from the center to replace you at the center of our lives. And so, God, I pray that there'd be some really radical action that would come in our homes, in our lives, uh, from what we've heard today and what we're hearing in our small group as well. God, would you give us the strength and the courage and the conviction to do what we know that we need to do, but, but may be very hard to do, and we might be embarrassed to do, but would you just knock that over and enable us to do what we need to do in your strength? So God, we'll give you the glory for all of that. Uh, bless us as we go from this place, as we seek to live for you, not only with our finances, but in every area of our life. We love you, and we're so grateful for what you have done for us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.